You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Father, we're grateful that you brought us together on this Lord's Day, and we're thankful that the prophets, that even though they're dead, they continue to speak and to reach into our world um, so many so many years now removed. And I pray that you'll help the teacher today and those who are here to listen, that you'll open our hearts and our minds to perceive the wonders of your, of your law. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, privileged to be in the dean's class for the next few weeks, and we are the, the title in the in the bulletin. I think got, I'll, I'll put this on me. It was I think it got messed up. It's speak louder. Oh, senior. Okay. Is it too diffuse? Should I go up? All right, Glenn. I'll do it for you. Is that better? Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be in the Dean's class. We're doing two weeks. The title that's in the, um, the worship bulletin is not quite right. It's, it's, it's the, what, what was it again? Something like, um, oh, the identity of God in, uh, Joel and Amos, not and a uh, Joel and Amos. Uh, so we're going to do, we're going to do Joel and Amos over the next three weeks together. And, uh, they're, you know, they're, they have their challenges, so I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Um, we just finished a four-week series on Ecclesiastes, um, and I was mentioning to Ms. Datcher here in, in the front row, you know, Ecclesiastes is not really a book that you, um, that you finish, you just kind of, you abandon it. And uh, that's what, so we, we just abandoned that one. That's like, all right. Um, and in part, and I, I don't know if I mentioned this last week or not in the class, but it, it, it seized me when it was all over um, that the nature of a book like Ecclesiastes, where the central theme is that vanity of vanities or hevel or the way in which I was sort of leaning into this from a translation standpoint, the ungraspable character of things, the fact that um, like smoke, we cannot hold on to things in any kind of firm grasp, um, that the book of Ecclesiastes is that, in a way. I mean, that's, that's part of the, the ploy of the, of the author, is that the book of Ecclesiastes resists any kind of final formulation. It requires you to return to it again and again. So I feel, that's, that's me um, helping myself feel better about abandoning uh, the book. Uh, but now we're going to turn to Joel. And I actually look, it's, we have pew Bibles in here. I don't like this setting one bit for teaching a class. It's too formal. Um, but one positive is you all have access to a Bible. So that's great. Um, so if you grab a pew Bible somewhere around you, and I looked, it's page 760 in your pew Bible. We're going to begin in Joel today. And believe it or not, my goal... And there's no clock in here. I'll have to rely on this. My, my goal is to do basically the whole book of Joel this morning, which will then give us two, two weeks in Amos. Um, so we'll turn to Joel. But before we turn to Joel, I need to kind of flip us back one page, if that's okay, to the end of Hosea. 
And let, let me set this up a little bit for you. And some of you have had me uh, before in various settings where we've talked about the minor prophets. Um, but at least by, I guess, somewhere like the second century B.C., uh, when um, uh, Ben Sira wrote his book Ecclesiasticus, which is in uh, the pseudepigraphical and deuterocanonical literature um, in our in our um, in our Christian tradition, uh, he, by the time of the second century B.C., someone like Ben Sira was referring to the minor prophets as the Book of the Twelve. Uh, so when you think about the ways in which the latter prophets, and there there are, if you go Isaiah, these often called the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then hold on to your hats, here we go, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Really good news, by the way, you don't have to do that to get into heaven, to remember all those. <laughs> Um, but once we get into the, what we call the minor prophets, and they were, they were referred to as the minor prophets probably the first time with someone like St. Augustine in the late 4th, early 5th century. And they're called minor prophets not because they're less in authority or weight than Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. They're called minor because of their size. Um, but by the 2nd century B.C., there was an understanding that the book of the minor prophets, which fit onto one scroll, so there is a kind of interesting providence about that, but it fits onto one scroll, um, that these 12 individual prophetic voices were understood to be in some kind of inner conversation the one with the other. So that we can certainly read Joel, as we will during this series today in Amos next week, we can certainly read these books as individual prophetic witnesses. We do so, and we do so wisely and well. But there's also a kind of reading strategy that's been invited, I think, we've been invited into on the basis of the way in which the minor prophets have been shaped and formed. In other words, there's a kind of internal conversation going on. The minor prophetic voices tend to be listening to one another in an interesting way. Um, so for, I'll just give you an example of this. Like if you, we'll, we'll be turning a lot. But if you look at the end of Joel, it says in Joel chapter 3 verse 16, The Lord roars from Zion, and He utters His voice from Jerusalem. Now flip a page to Amos chapter 1, verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. When you move to the end of Amos, you don't have to turn there, you move to the end of Amos and there's a final word of judgment against the Edomites. Those are the offspring of Esau. And a long-term perennial problem for Judah and Israel. So Amos ends with a kind of challenge against the Edomites. And then you move into the book of Obadiah, that one single chapter prophetic voice. And what's Obadiah doing? Obadiah is a single chapter that's against the Edomites. So what you begin to see as you move through the Minor Prophets or the Book of the Twelve is that there's a kind of tipping and tucking that's happening at the end of prophetic books that lean into the next book, and there's a kind of conversation that's going on. So you begin to see, um, I'll use a couple of metaphors here, a kind of chain link uh, between the Minor Prophets. Or maybe another one, a kind of tableau, where these various individual voices have been brought together in internal conversation. 
And this is why the book of Joel is so fascinating. Because Joel um, is a prophetic book that I think most scholars, not all of them, but the majority of Bible scholars see Joel and Joel's prophetic witness as late. Um, he's probably a post-exilic voice writing after the exile. But that's not where Hosea or Amos are located. In fact, if you look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, and then Amos chapter 1, verse 1, both Hosea and Amos um, are writing as prophets to the northern kingdom in the 8th century B.C. And it's quite likely that Joel is writing his prophetic book in the 6th century B.C. So what does that say? Well, here you have Hosea and Amos, and, and these are, I, I find this stuff, I'm, I'm going to lose you all here, and I don't I want to, but I find this endlessly fascinating. Um, because Amos um, is actually older than Hosea. Not by a lot, but, but probably by 10 to 20 years older. Um, and yet Hosea's prophetic voice comes first in the prophetic literature. And I think that's, or at least in the Minor Prophets, and I think that's the case for a reason. For a similar reason, by the way, that I think, and I wouldn't go to the guillotine over this, I could easily change my mind. Um, but I'm pretty convinced that Romans is the first book in the Pauline collection for a reason. In other words, Romans provides for me the kind of interpretive lens that I need, the major theological and practical categories that I need to enter into the whole of the Pauline collection. Galatians, uh, Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, as I move on. Romans is not the oldest letter that Paul wrote. Uh, in fact, most think that the oldest letter that Paul wrote is Thessalonians. And, and Paul's collection is not ordered chronologically. Neither is the collection ordered chronologically within uh, the Minor Prophets, at least according to the Hebrew canon order. So Hosea comes first, and Hosea sets out for us, I, I think the major theological tone that we're going to have and that we need to anticipate as we enter into the whole of the Minor Prophets. And I'll, and I'll show you this at the end of Hosea here in a second. But this raises all kinds of fun questions like, well, why is Joel here? Why would Joel, if he's a late prophetic book, be situated right between two 8th century northern kingdom, we're talking about Israel and the northern kingdom, why would this southern prophet be located, this small southern prophet, right nestled right between Hosea and Amos? That's a question I want to keep before you, but I think it's an important one that leans into the nature of our series, the title, Who is God? And how is God revealed to us in the books of Joel and Amos? Joel plays a very important role in his position as he helps us navigate um, the Lord roaring from Zion in the book of Hosea and the book of Amos. Um, and Joel is doing some other things as well that may be of interest to you. If you look at the end of Hosea chapter, I mean, Hosea 14, which I'm going to guess is 758. How, that was some quick math there, quick math. Um, in your pew Bibles, I don't know what page it is. But Hosea 14. Hosea, this large prophetic book here, ends with a call to repentance. And we're going to see this in Joel as well. It ends with a call uh, to repentance. And you, you know something about the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is a, for lack of a better term, um, it's, it's a gut punch. Um, it leans into, really, the dynamics of the sermon that we heard this morning already about the nature of marriage 
and the nature of marriage as a kind of indication to the world prophetically of what it means for God to be God and for God to love His people. We heard that exposited so well this morning. A lot of courage in that sermon. So we heard this morning about the nature of marriage, and God chooses Hosea the prophet in the 8th century, and He says, Hosea, not only do I want you to be my spokesman um, before my people, but I also want you to embody in your very existence, not just your words, but in your life, I want you to enter into a symbolic action that's going to demonstrate to my people the nature of my relationship with them. So this is what I want you to do, Hosea. I want you to go and marry a woman. Lots of debates here on how best to understand Gomer. But I want you to marry a woman who either is an active prostitute. I don't actually follow that interpretation, but that, 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 if that's your reading, that's fine. Who either is a kind of active prostitute or who is a woman who in time will become marked by her public infidelity. She's going to be faithless to you. And if you look into Hosea chapter 1, some interesting dynamics are going on. Right? Hosea, that says, And she bore him a first son. Him meaning Hosea. And they named that son Jezreel. And if you read closely, and there's a little bit of an argument by, of silence here, so I'd be careful to lean too heavily into this, but I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded myself at least, that the next two children, not great children names, by the way, uh, Lo-Ami, if you're looking for kids, I wouldn't go this route. Lo-Ami, not my people. That was the name of, of the second child. And then the third child is Lo-Ruchama, which means no mercy. So, so the children of Gomer are Jezreel, um, not my people, and no mercy. That kind of makes for an interesting evening around the table, I guess. Um, and if you look at Hosea chapter 1 carefully, you'll see that she bore to him a child, and they named him Jezreel. And then the next two children, it says, and she bore a second child. And then the third one is, and she bore a third child. And there's no prepositional phrase, to him, to him. It's only with the first child. The second, the second and the third children, they're just born. Um, and they indicate the breakdown of the, of the covenantal relationship between Hosea and his wife Gomer, as God is meaning to symbolically represent to his people the breakdown of the covenant relationship that he had between himself and them. If you know Deuteronomy and kind of leaned into that book at some point, you'll know that at the heart of Deuteronomy is this language right here. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the heart of the covenant relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. But what's Hosea uh, attesting to in his prophetic witness? The inverse of that. But if you will not, if you will not have me as your God solely, then what? You will not be my people. That's the name of Hosea's second child. Lo, Ami, not my people. So you enter into this very, I'm not sure how else to describe Hosea, but this deeply visceral, um, and emotive, and, and deeply troubling reading about a man's existence. And we're not given anything about Hosea's psychological state. We don't know anything about the angst that he felt over his marriage. We're really not given that kind of insight in the book of Hosea. What we're left with is this stark picture, this stark narrative that's been embodied in Hosea's own existence about marrying a woman bearing children with this woman, and then eventually moving into the breakdown of the relationship, which in time will be overcome again in restoration and renewed a covenantal hope. So that's the first three chapters of Hosea. 
that the marriage relationship between God and His people has broken down, but there's hope. And how do we have hope? Well, Hosea doesn't leave us in the dark on this. Where is hope to be found? In the recognition that the relationship, the unique relationship between God and His people has has come unglued. And here we come to Hosea chapter 14. I wanted to look at this here. Hosea 14 says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Um, I've said this in other contexts, and it's a little silly, but if, if, if the prophets um, uh, had a little kiosk outside of the temple and, and sold prophet t-shirts um, on prophet game day, there would be one Hebrew word on their shirts that they would sell. It would be the Hebrew word shuv, um, which, is the, which is the word repent, uh, turn. You're heading in this direction. God is calling you to turn back to Him. And listen to the character and the nature of repentance as it's on display here in Hosea chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, because you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you, and this this is one of my favorite verses in Hosea, verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to Him, Take away all iniquity and accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. So what does repentance look like? It's take words with you. Well, what words should we take? These words. O Lord, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. Um, I, 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 Again, kind of an associative reading here. I can't help but think about the story of the prodigal son here. Um, and here you see the prodigal son who has turned the other way. That, that's another one of God's favorite metaphors in the Old Testament that's picked up. You have the metaphor of the husband and wife, and you have the metaphor of the father and the son. Um, and when the father and son relationship is broken down, again, we have the break apart of the covenantal relationship. And, and Jesus leans into that with the story of the prodigal son. The son, before the time was right, says, give me, give me my inheritance, which is in effect saying... And this is hard, but it's in effect the, the young son saying, it's for me right now, that it's better that you were dead than you were alive. Um, so he takes the inheritance, he, he, he wastes it in wanton living. But do you remember what he's doing when he finally finds himself in the pig pen in a foreign land? Um, he rehearses his speech. He, he, he does what Hosea 14.2 says. He's preparing for himself to take words with him. He's not going back to the Father empty-handed. He's going back with words of repentance. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. And the beauty of the prodigal son story is what? That the Father runs off the porch when he sees him. itself an act of kind of public shame for any patriarch. The Father runs off the porch to the Son who's returning in repentance. He begins his speech, remember this? And the Father shuts him up. No, 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 you're here. The very fact that you've turned back to me, that's enough. You need to say nothing else. So he's preparing words here in Hosea chapter 14. Take words of repentance with you because of your sin, because you know that you will find mercy. And look at verse 4 of Hosea 14. And what's God going to do? It's what God has to do. You see, this is the beauty, I think, of the minor prophets when it gives us a portrait of who our God is. Um, again, in light of the, the prodigal son, God can't help but run off the porch. He's, he's got no other mechanism within his being. 
Um, when we turn to Him in contrition and repentance and an honest recognition of who we are and an honest confession of our identity before Him, He can't do anything else. It's, it's, it's who God is. It's how we pick Him out of a lineup of all competing deities. Our God steps forward and He says, I'm the one who can do nothing else but show mercy in the light of my people's turning to me in their repentance. Verse 4 of 14. I'm going to heal their apostasy. I'll love them freely. My anger will have turned away from them. They turn toward me. I turn my anger from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall be, he shall blossom like the lily. He'll, he'll take root like the trees of Lebanon, the great cedars. His shoot shall spread out and his beauty shall be like the olive and his, his fragrance shall be like Lebanon. And they shall return and they're going to dwell where? And I want you to keep this image before you as we move into Joel. They will dwell beneath my shadow. Because when we enter into Joel and we enter into Amos, we're going to introduce what might be one of the most central themes to the minor prophets. And that's the theme of the day of the Lord. The day when the Lord shows up. And I'll just go, so I don't bury the lead, I'll let you know that the day of the Lord is good news for some, and it's bad news for others. Amos chapter 5 verse 18 says, you keep asking for the day of the Lord. I wouldn't, I'm paraphrasing him here, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Because the day of the Lord is not going to be light. It'll be darkness. It'll be a challenge. So the day of the Lord will be presented to us in the book of Joel, and we'll see it this morning, in an awful and terrifying way. And this is the question that I think Joel wants us to wrestle with. How does one survive the day of the Lord? How does one survive that kind of encounter with the divine? Because I think this is the, and I'll use the word tension, though I think it's used too much, but this is the tension that I think we find in the presentation of God's being that we have to hold together without allowing either side to be attenuated or, or made less of in any way. And that is, number one, God is awesome and terrifying in His holiness and His otherness. His beauty is a consuming fire. He is other. Um, and at the same time, we have to hold to the fact that God's transcendence, His otherness, His holiness, He's not like anything that you and I can imagine He's a consuming fire. He's a lion. I mean, these are all the metaphors that the prophets use as if the prophets can't find enough metaphors to describe the complete otherness of Israel's God, of our God. He's other. And yet, at the same time, He's the one who stoops low in His mercy and marries a wife and enters into a familial relationship with His people, a father-son relationship. He's a shepherd who guides us along the way. These tender, um, eminent metaphors are equally central to the presentation of God's being. And it's very hard. I mean, I think our tendency, depending on what day of the week you might find yourself, is to lean into one over against the other. You know, I, I want Jesus as my buddy, but I don't want necessarily the Jesus of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Or, I recognize Revelation 4 and 5, this is who Jesus is, but I can't quite conceive that He's my friend, and He's close, and He's near me. Um, of course, C.S. Lewis was so good at, at leaning into this with his famous you know, uh, depiction of Aslan. 
You know, he's a lion that's not tame and is not safe. You remember that? Is he, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's dangerous. Yet at the same time, that lion allows us to curl up into his mane with the comfort and the security that comes from being near that kind of beast. So this is how Hosea is ending. Do you see this? Where will we find our refuge? Beneath his shadow. They're going to flourish like grain. They're going to blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of, e- of Lebanon. O Ephraim, which is a term of endearment for the northern kingdom. O Israel. O Jacob. What have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. And then here's the last verse of Hosea, which I understand this last verse of Hosea to be the kind of interpretive invitation to the whole of the minor prophets. This is if Hosea is now putting his arm around us and saying, hey, you've gone on a long journey through this book that I've left you. And this is a hard journey. But now you're about to enter into 11 other prophetic voices. From Joel all the way to Malachi. And many of the themes, matter of fact, most of the themes that I've already introduced to you, these other prophetic voices are going to come along and lean into them in similar ways, but with their own unique accent. Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Giving us a kind of angle of entry on this incredible historical reality of Jesus of Nazareth. And we have Mark, and we have Luke, and we have um, uh, Matthew, and John, and they all give us genuine and full entry points into the person of Jesus, but we have four of them. So here's Hosea, in effect, saying, there are all these prophetic voices that you're about to hear, but here's the question, the interpretive question that you might want to have before you as you enter into these, the, the remainder of these prophetic uh, voices. Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. I've got to stop for one second here. Let them know them. Back in Hosea chapter 4, the prophet says, My people perish because they have a lack of knowledge. Now, when you and I hear the term knowledge, I think our tendency is to think in overly cerebral terms, a kind of intellectual quest. That's not necessarily the kind of knowledge, or at least it's not limited to that kind of knowledge when Hosea says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. They, they suffer for lack of knowledge because the knowledge of who God is, is saving to know God and understand who God is, is, is to enter into his very reality. And entering into God's very reality is how we rest under the shadow of his wing as a recognition of who he really is. Because we all know it. We see it in the culture around us and we see it with our own tendencies. And left to our own devices, our instinct is to create God in our own image. That's what we, we do that naturally. I do it naturally. We want a God that we can manage. And what the prophet is saying is, you don't get a God that you can manage. You get a God who has revealed himself and spoken to you. And he's revealed himself primarily back in that Exodus event when he redeemed you from your slavery and brought you into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. That's your God. But you've forgotten him. It's a lack of knowledge that's leading to your own destruction. 
There's a kind of uh, affective and intellectual and faith element that's all wrapped up with what the prophets mean when they're talking about knowledge. To know that it's true and to lean into it as if it's true because our very lives depend on it. And here Hosea says they die for lack of knowledge, but here's the question you need to be asking. God, who are you? And how can we come to know you? And the person who asks that kind of question when reading the Bible, that's the wise person, Hosea is telling us. That's the discerning person. Is the person who's saying, God, who are you? What are your ways? What, what, how have you revealed yourself? How have you spoken into our darkness? Because, he says, the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in the way. Now, with all that said, you ready for Joel? Here we go. Brace yourself. Brace yourself. So when you turn to Joel, Joel uses, right in chapter 1, a historical circumstance that occurred that really we have no, we have no record of. But it was probably a historical circumstance that could, could have happened time and times again. Uh, verse 4, what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. And what the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts has eaten. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts has eaten. Now what is this here? Well, this is a reminder of some event that probably occurred within their own Recent memory, um, a locust plague of some sort. And by the way, when you hear locust plague and you have some kind of vague memory, oh yes, I remember the flannel graph when I was little about that, you know, the plague in Egypt in Exodus chapter, what, 9 or 10? Um, that locust plague back in Exodus is meant to be part of your memory with this locust plague that they're experiencing right now. And God has used this locust plague, which I think is a real plague, to be an indicator of them, to them in their current moment about the day of the Lord and the Lord's judgment. So this is a, this, these, these locusts, these grasshopper figures that come in and can destroy their crops, which kind of hit me thinking about this recently. Whoops. Uh, recently. And it's, it's hard for us in a kind of non-agrarian world. I don't, you know, I, I read Wendell Berry novels and, and, you know, I, I, I love the sort of, fascinating um, imaginative life of living in the sort of agrarian farm world, but that's just, I, I, I don't live in that world. It's hard for me to imagine some of the dynamics that are part of that world. Some of you will know it much better. Um, but we're talking about a world that, that uh, relies on its agrarian um, hopes. I mean, this is why the, 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 uh, the cult of Baal, which was so prominent... Um, within that Mesopotamian region during this period of time and way before as well, was really so tempting. Because what was the prophet Baal? He was the prophet, I mean, what was the god Baal? Baal was the god that would promise for them a renewed harvest. You remember what would happen? Um, Baal would, in effect, die every winter. And then when he would die, they'd move into the spring and they'd move into harvest time and they would engage all these kinds of really kind of gross ritual activities from sexual activities out in open fields to the letting of blood into the... And what was all this doing? I mean, to be indelicate here, the, the spread of our blood and fluids into the earth was meant to bring dead Baal back to life again. So, so why? Because when he comes back to life, he brings with him harvest and, 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 and it's that kind of um, agricultural bounty. 
So when you find Elijah, by the way, back on the Mount, on Mount Carmel, making fun of the prophets of Baal, remember what they were doing? Cutting themselves. Why were they doing that? That was part of their cultic ritual. Maybe this blood will bring him back to life. And do you remember when Elijah makes fun of them? Maybe he's still sleeping. Now, I always remember Elijah saying that as kind of a, a snarky, prophetic, you know, um, uh, uh, other team cheer, you know. Um, maybe your coach is asleep. That's why you're playing so bad or something like that. But he's actually leaning into their very myth. He's still sleeping. You, you haven't done enough yet. Cut, I mean, it's kind of, na- I mean, cut yourself some more. Um, because Baal's still, Right. So so this whole dynamic about agriculture and life and the rhythm of the seasons is integral to their to their very survival. And here God has sent a plague to them that's been something that's turned them upside down. And the plague of the locusts is both a real plague, but also a metaphor for the coming armies of destruction. And this is one of the reasons that that people who read Joel find some challenge here. What's the challenge? Was the locust plague real or was it a metaphor for the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or whomever? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think the locust plague was real. Something they could look at and say, I remember the summer of 638 B.C. They wouldn't have said that, but I can remember that summer and it was awful. But I also remember when the Babylonians came into town. That was awful too. And here the prophet is saying this, these moments in time are an indication of you to you that the day of the Lord is a, is a day that has come, that is coming, and that will come again. In other words, the prophet Joel doesn't want you to think of the day of the Lord as only an end-of-time phenomenon. The prophet wants you to understand that the day of the Lord is something that happens in time, in the midst of time, now and in the future. And the question that comes to us again and again is, well, how do we survive the coming day of the Lord? How do we do it? And here you move into Joel chapter 2. I want to read this to you. Oh, shoot. And then I'll let you go. Okay? Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. We might say, say, return to me with every fabric of your being, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, And just so we're clear, the prophet says, I'm not really interested in your external religiosity. I'm not interested in the things that you can take as a matter of your own religious possession. A kind of divine appeasement ritual that you take within your own control to make God happy with you again. Don't just rend your garments. Don't do just something externally religious. Rend your hearts. Hear that? Let this be something that's internal that's drawn from something that's genuine and real. A true recognition of the moment itself and your place in that moment. Rend your hearts and not just your garments. And then return to the Lord. And here's the crucial cause for why we can even turn to the Lord with any kind of hope and joy. I love love what we heard this morning in the sermon. Why we can get out of the boat like Peter after we deny Jesus and swim hard to Him. What a great scene, right? I mean, Peter had blown it. And the first time he sees Jesus, he's making a mad dash for him. Why can Peter do that? Why do we do that? Because he's gracious. And he's merciful. And he's slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. 
And he, he is quick to relent from the judgment that he's bringing to you. So let's turn to him because who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering. Last verses here. Joel chapter uh, 2, verse 30. Look there toward the end of the verse of the chapter. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth. By the way, when we come to Good Friday and we see the whole creation beginning to react, goes black, earth begins to shake, um, Matthew's Gospel has dead people coming out of the grave and visiting their relatives. I have no idea what to do with that, but it's in there. Um, it's, it's, it's the whole creation responding to the judgment of God. That's what's happening. It's, it's coming right out of the prophet playbook when you come to Good Friday. Listen, listen. When, when, when my judgment comes, there'll be wonders on heaven and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. Right? It's Good Friday. The moon to blood. Why? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a reason why Peter uses this text in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon. The day of the Lord is awesome and terrible. Well, how do we survive it? Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. And what will they be called? I love this. They will be called survivors. They're the ones that the Lord has called. So what you have here in the end of chapter of chapter 2 in Joel is this interesting um, uh, combination. Who are those who survive the day of the Lord? Those who call on His name? Those who turn to Him, rending their hearts and not their garments? Those who turn to Him knowing that they can turn to Him because He's gracious and kind and quick to forgive our sins. That's who He is. Those who turn to find refuge in Him. They will be called the survivors of Israel. That's, those are the ones who survive the day of the Lord. And look at the last way they're described here in Joel chapter 2. Those are also the ones whom the Lord has called. So we find great comfort in a recognition that we're calling on the Lord because we know that He's made the first move toward us to call us to himself. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, the sheep hear my voice and they know it. So Lord, thank you for Joel. Um, a book that follows right after Hosea, Lord, to, to show us what taking words and turning to you in repentance actually looks like and why we would even have the hope and the courage to do it. Because we know, Lord, that when we take a hard look at who we are, and a hard look at who you are. The two should never meet. But you've stooped low to us in your Son. You've shown us that you are a God who is gracious and merciful. It's your character. It's your identity. And you run off the porch to meet us and to greet us. When we recognize who we are and confess who you are, a God quick to mercy and forgiveness. Lord, can I pray this this morning? May everyone here, myself included, survive the day of the Lord. And we know, O Lord, that we will do so only, not because we fix our eyes on ourselves or our ability to rend our garments, but because we've turned to you in repentance, knowing who you are in your kindness 
and in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.